when you're riding at the World Championships after everyone's told you you're shit, you're done, you're too old, you're never going to make it in the cycling, and you've got the whole world behind you, and you're riding 53.11 to the finish line in your hometown at 50-something K an hour, and the TV motorbike's behind you, you're just like, is this real? Am I going to wake up in bed in a minute, or is this for real? So you just heard him. He's our guest today, and he took a very interesting road to the top of professional cycling compared to many from his generation. From success on the mountain bike circuit, he made the switch to the road that no one else up until that moment had done. Blessed with amazing talent and consistency over the years, but not with a few speed bumps along the way, he rode to victories in some of the world's biggest races, including Flesh Wallone, the World Championship Road Race in 2009, and made it to the top step of the podium in the 2011 Tour de France. This is going to be a good one. Everyone, please enjoy our great conversation with Cadell Evans. All right, everyone, as promised, Cadell Evans, welcome to Bobby and Jens. <laughs> Thank you, Bobby and Jens, for having me here. How are you guys? We are pretty good, and we're thrilled to have you because you are going to be one of my favorite riders I ever raced with. No way. Wow, that's well, I'll take that as a, a big compliment, Jens, because, well, one, you race for a long time, and you race with a, a lot. So, thank you. Thank you. That's a way, way to get things... Um, <clears throat> oh, um, I'm, I'm, uh, um, I'm honored. Geez, a little um, throwing out the, the compliments right away. Well, hey, I knew or I met Cadell before you did, at least I think. Cadell, um, I remember the day I met you. It was at, at the Travelers Luzon time trial after the Tour de France in Switzerland. Travelers Luzon, that's correct. Yeah, um, 98, was it? It was 98. You just and, got third in there. And... Um, Obviously, Pontani was there. You know, we had just finished the tour. And and um, I met you and started talking to you. And I had heard a lot about you already. But um, I remember I pulled... It was like two time trials. So we did one and then we came down and did another one. Um, straight uphill. And I pulled out this little bar that I had with me in every stage of the tour. Um, I forget the name of it. I think it was a snack bar from Champion Nutrition. And you were like, hey, can I take a look at that? And I was like, oh, man, this these were great. I mean, they taste good, gave me energy. And you turned it over, looked at the ingredients, and picked out, like, I don't know, hydrogenated corn oil or something. And you were like, no, this th this isn't really good for you. And you gave it back to me. And I was just like, what? what? Who, who, who is this kid, like, already, like, you know, telling me what I'm doing here? But right then and there, I was just like, you know... I like this kid. I like this kid, but it definitely caught me off guard a little bit. <laughs> I, I, I thought, looking back at it now, that's not a good way to make a, a, a good first impression on life, is it? But um, I, because I started in mountain bike and I was still mountain biking then. I was still full-time mountain bike. I was riding stints in 98 um, on the road with the Australian uh, under-23 team, racing in Italy, racing with guys, Basso, De Luca, and these guys and um so i was just doing a few road races on the side in between my mountain bike and the mountain bike world cup but um that was my mountain biking was really my school of cycling and what what brought me to the sport 
Let's go a little bit further back. How was your upbringing in Australia? What does a kid do in Australia? Why didn't you end up playing cricket? Hey, you know, all I know about cricket is if you're out for a duck, it's very bad. And the worst is if you're out for a golden duck. That's about all I know about cricket. So how come you picked up cycling and you didn't play cricket? Where did you grow up? What happened back then in your life? I was born in uh, Catherine in the Northern Territory, which if you look on a map is sort of like If you go to the middle of nowhere and then go a bit further, you find that there's a hospital out there somewhere, and I was born in that hospital. Um, it's a long way from anywhere. Let's say if you go to Darwin and head south towards Ayers Rock and you stop about one third of the way, that's where the only city you'll find, town you'll find is Catherine. Hey, is, is that where Crocodile Dundee was filmed? That must be just around the corner, no? Just around the corner, yep, exactly, exactly. But that's the, that's the most famous thing on in the world stage that happened in that area. But it was really a remote place, and from from a, no, no, nothing compared to um, growing up in Europe or or, or um, may, maybe there's some parts of know, Alaska in that regard, or I don't know Nevada. It's probably more like Nevada than uh, or Arizona than uh, it would be the closest thing I I could compare it to in in America. But um, anyway, I was born there and um, lived in the country. And and um, a lot of my biggest influences that tried to shortcut to where we where where how I got to cycling was I we didn't watch much TV. I didn't have any brothers or sisters, and I lived in such remote locations. I sort of to play cricket, you need to play with someone else. It's kind of like and um, living in such a remote locations yeah I could only do sports that you could do solo or activities that you could do solo as a kid so bike riding was one of those and um, I sort of fell into the sport a little bit by accident in my teen years where um, a friend of mine actually um, he's um, he used to come around to my house and watch the Tour de France highlights that we used to get back in the early 90s and um Started watching that, watched Miguel Indrain ride to his first uh, Tour de France victory in 1991 and that sort of planted a seed in my head and I just started mountain biking and doing a few small races and thought, oh, I wouldn't mind doing that one day and um, long story short, 20 years later, I, I did do it. Yeah, yeah, you did. I mean, you dominated the, the World Cup in 98 and 99 and was your reasoning... Uh, to not jump over to the road because of the Olympics in, in 2000? Was that like your, your big goal? Exactly, yeah. We had the Olympics in Sydney in Australia, of course, and that was sort of a big goal for me in the end. Like looking back at it now, um, I, it sort of came a bit too much when I was 23 years old and was, um, you know, I, I had a really, uh, in my career, I was quite injury-free and regular, but I, I look back at my career and every fourth year I had some, an injury or an illness or something went wrong. And that just coincided with the Olympic year. So every year, my Olympic year was my worst year in a four-year cycle. So I, um, my, um, couldn't um, couldn't quite get achieve get the best out of myself on on that on that day in those Olympic years, which was uh, sort of a small, slight regret in my career. But um, my real goal was yeah to go through to the Olympics and then see what happened after then uh, in terms of an opportunity a race on the road and so on. But I like I said. I was racing in between the mountain bike World Cups a little bit for training for mountain bike, but also in terms of building a bit of a base to go possibly to the road on the future. I was racing the under 23 races in Italy, and at that time the level was really, really high, the highest under 23 level in the year and in the in the world. And um, so I was getting good training, good racing, but I was also learning learning a lot of the riders, but gaining a lot of experience. And that was um, that was a bit my sort of foundation in road cycling, really. 
When you then uh, decided to move uh, into road cycling, you had then to move completely to Europe, right? Or did you live in Europe before already as a mountain bike rider? I, as a mountain bike, I, I went earlier in my career, I was um, I had to make a choice to, to be based in Europe because I, I did a couple of years as a junior traveling around the world. But, you know, living out of a suitcase for five or six months at a time, you, you get pretty quite tired of that pretty quickly. Um, makes you good at packing a suitcase. Makes you very efficient. But um, in the end, I had a base. I took a base in Switzerland. There was an ex-Australian writer, Stephen Hodge, who had just started working at a management group in Neuchatel in Switzerland, and that was sort of the only contact I had back then, actually. And he brought me to, to Switzerland, where actually I still call Switzerland my base today, not, not near Neuchatel in the French part. But, um, but for that reason was why I, um, chose, I chose Switzerland. Well, first I chose Europe rather than North America because of the idea of going to the road further on, but also to be exposed to the uh, higher level of racing, the level that was a bit higher, certainly on the road, but also at that point, uh, even in mountain biking, then Europe was already more competitive uh, environment and, and producing the best riders in the world at that point. Yeah, and I mean, talking about like just jumping into the deep end of a pool, you went to, I, I believe your first professional road team was Saeco, right? And then after that, you switched to Mape, is that correct? Um, I, yeah, because I was riding with Cannondale in mountain bike and, and I did a stagiaire period in 99. I was still under 23 and then 2000 injuries and things. I didn't do much road racing. Then 2001, um, Seiko were pretty happy with the results I did and I was riding a little bit on the road but with the pros in between the mountain bike World Cups. And 2001 was a season where, well, I learnt a lot but it was actually one of the most fatiguing years of my life because I was sort of getting off a plane from America, coming racing the Mountain Bike World Cups in North America, fly home, get off the plane and switch my mentality, pull out my road bike and do some long rides to get ready for the pro races. And what I really admire about um, Van Der Poel and, and, and Van Oert now is seeing that, um, especially say Tom Pidcock, the, the mountain bike races are even shorter now. Then the races were longer. So the switch didn't seem that I had difficulty going to the road and going once you got to four, four and a half hours there, beyond then. And um, to, you used to take me a race or two just to get that whole fat burning system and everything going and, and make the crossover. But, um, but yeah, it, other than that, it was also lots of time driving and flying everywhere. But, um, yeah, I, did, I was doing a little bit both. And um, Mappo saw me that year and, long story short, they... Um, Came, they approached me at the World Championships actually in uh, Lisbon that year and uh, asked me, oh, would you like to uh, join us to, to develop into a, a Grand Tour rider? Was it straight away Grand Tour rider or classics or any good rider or did he specifically come to you and ask you if you want to be a Grand Tour rider? Specifically, um, Grand Tour riders, I, I've later found out that um, Mappe, oh, they had quite a... Um, Quite, they've quite an elaborate sort of talent talent scouting program or looking around and I think they'd been watching me uh, it was uh, back with Aldo Sassi back then and he was coaching Dario Cioni mountain biking so I think I suppose he was already looking at me or seen me as an athlete through that and had seen me racing in Italy but no it was really right from the start of come would you want to come to map a and 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 become a grand tour rider with us and that was yeah so I went home to Australia after that world championships and had to completely switch gear and I didn't touch my mountain bike and I just did a lot of long rides because all of a sudden I'm going from training from a sort of two-hour pure sugar-burning event to um, three-week grand tours were on the horizon. So just went, came back to Australia, did a lot of Ks and got ready for a, a career change. And 
the career change happened quite quickly because you got into the Giro and all of a sudden had the pink jersey on. But I want to go back to your coach, um, Aldo Sassi. I mean, he was a legend. And you were obviously one of his favorite favorite riders. Tell us a little bit about Mr. Saucy and and what he meant to you, not only in your development but later on in your career, and you know even now after his unfortunate passing. Um, yeah, I I totally agree with you, Bobby. He was an absolute legend. Um, most of all, um, Professor Professor Saucy, as they call him at Mape, was um, he was way ahead of his time. That was the, that was the biggest thing. Um, so, um, you know, when people come in with what seem, um, when, you know, when, when anyone goes against the status quo, it upsets a few people or <laughs> they don't fit in, so to say, but he, this is a guy who was 10 years ahead of his time and, and, um, you know, that's where he was, um, he had this opportunity to set up this great facility, MAPE Sport, which still exists today and any, anyone can, can go there as a, from the public and go there and get biomechanical analysis, training programs, testing, progressive max test vo2 max test all those kinds of things that 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 map sport still exists today but him as a as a coach he um yeah it was really mape was a was a big team they had a good budget they had two teams the gs1 team the gs3 team which was kind of like um, by today's standards having a world tour team and having a pro conti team or a continental team um the continental team being the development team for the for the gs1 um or in this by today's equivalent to the world tour team um so they had this enormous amount of talent on on both teams and then they had this whole training program of this um, <clears throat> sports facility behind them which was just probably what um <clears throat> many, many all the top teams have access to that equipment today or the, those resources today but probably not in a one single structure and so um <clears throat> in that regard um Dr. Squinzi and Mappe and the whole thing, the whole belief and the ethos behind the team was really well ahead of its time. Um, and then Aldo was, um, for me, in, in my influence in my career, one, I had this opportunity, and I was still mountain biking out there in 2001, <clears throat> from going into 2002, I still had a year on my contract and everything, and then I had this opportunity and people who wanted to work with me, and all of a sudden, um, the best, probably, in my mind, he was the best coach in the world, and certainly at that time, um, um, and with the biggest team in the world wanting to work with me to develop as a Grand Tour rider, I'm like, what, what, wow. what, this is an opportunity of any young rider's dreams, right? And I was 25 years old, and um, here was an opportunity for me to have a second career in sport. Already coming from my background, the idea of just becoming a professional cyclist was so far, was considered, me growing up was just considered completely absurd because no one could do that. No one could ride the Tour de France. No one could be a professional mountain biker that's that's way too hard but here I was having a the opportunity to have a second career in sport and um and then with Mappa with Aldo Sassi guiding me and in my career um with one thing that really with Aldo other than everything that I learned and and um he was really a creator of a lot of training systems and really right at the start of all these different training zones and strength specific training on the bike and these these things that that all of us use today but um, for me, as, a, as an athlete, often when I had setbacks in my career for, for whatever reasons, illness, injury, politics, teams or whatever, he believed in me more than I did. So I really have to thank him also for that, not just believing in me right at the start and giving me this opportunity, but then when I had doubted myself, <clears throat> he believed in me and I thought, of, well, I'll just keep at this because I'm doing it for him. But then, of course, 
your belief in everything comes back and um or your faith in in, in whatever situation you're in you, that some not not that I, i'd never believed in myself i suppose that's probably not stating it correctly but uh, you're in a certain situation and you're obviously when you're in a team and you don't even get selected to do the races you're aiming for your opportunities to do to get results at those races is kind of impossible but in those situations he um i, I suppose i was i was doing it for him for the future and uh yeah that's uh, without going too far into the details um then 2003 Kedel, you became teammates with uh, bobby j in yeah, uh, yeah. Team Telekom, um, Bobby, you want to ask a few questions about that uh, Hang time on, Bobby, together? Let's put a disclaimer for, before before we go into this this chapter of our life, because Bobby might have the same. I'm trying to delete. I'm trying to delete my memory of you know when we have un, unpleasant experiences in our life, we sort of try and forget about them, learn the lessons, forget the experience. That was a little bit my my uh, 2003 2004. But go on, Bobby. Yeah, um, we were we were um, in a hard situation there. There's no doubt about it. And I, all I said was, "Hey, I got Cadell here. I'm gonna room with him. We're gonna, you know, stay in our little room and you know, not learn German because no one's really, you know, offering to to hang out with us and everything." But then you break your collarbone not once not twice, but three times in the same season. So like we'd get to a race and I'd be like, okay, I'm happy. I'm rooming with Cadell. Okay. This is, this is, uh, the best, best situation that can happen. And then poor guy. Oh man, that, that was, that was, that was hard to watch. And, you know, I often wonder, you know, why Jens Volk didn't ride for that team. And after spending two years there, I'm like, you know, That was a good decision, Yenzi. That was a good decision. But um, yeah, so let's delete that. You know, I yep. think that's a very, very um, strong point that, that champions like yourself have is, you know, everything is a learning experience. And when it's a bad experience, you know, you can't dwell on it. You know, you just got to move on and, and uh, you know, always move forward. And you seem to do exactly that as soon as you switch teams And back then, it, I mean, it changed the, the name a couple of times. Uh, it was Davida Monlato. And like, you go to Davida Monlato, and for a good four years there, you were the man, right? Like, you, you were very consistent in races. Uh, you won the world tour in, uh, what was that, 2007? You won the world championships in 2009. So, What did click? I mean, was it was it just the team, or now you had? I remember you had some of uh, Nick Gates and a couple other buddies that that you really seemed to to click with. What was different there? What made Cadell Evans smile again after that 2003 and 2004 stint with uh, that German team? Was it what made me smile in Lotto, or was it taking away what didn't, what stopped me from smiling in Team, team Telecom, Team Mobile, Team etc.? It was a little bit more what didn't make me smile actually. No, most of all, I had these years and through bad luck and just being in a really in a kind of bizarre environment at Telecom, where it was for for Bobby and I, who who I'd like to think um, take this as a take this as a, a criticism to ourselves or not. I suppose we're just a little bit. <clears throat> 
I feel Bobby as coming from a, a culture we um we like to express our emotions. What 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 we Australians or Americans would call as being a human wasn't didn't fit in really well with the environment, just to just to just to without going into the details. And then here I am going from my first grand tour, taking the pink jersey as a neo pro, being there ready, nearly ready to win the Giro d'Italia at one one stage for, in the last mountain stage, to um, not even being selected for for like Flesh for Lawn and Liege Best on Liege and this grand tours and not even doing a grand tour. And um, so all of a sudden I'm like, all these races that I want to do, the the reason I want to be here, and you have to remember, as an Australian, I go to Europe and we pack our suitcase in January or February, we go there and we come home in October. So I'm over there on the other side of the world, I'm just over there completely on my own, no family, no, nothing, go back to my apartment and there's no one there, <laughs> it's really, you're just on your own doing it. And so when you go to the races and it's a miserable experience, then you come home and it's not like you can, you know, you've got a family to to talk about or something to talk with or something and and then but in this whole period I was just like I want to do this I'm over here I've made this commitment to be here and do these races and I'm not getting there so when when Lotto all of a sudden I've gone from not being selected to the races to being able to do all these races that I want to do the one thing in Lotto was um I was the only climber in the team so basically I, I went from doing no races that suited me to way too many races that suited me and that evolved in Lotto. It's like, oh, you did these races. Oh, let's do some more races. And yeah, you, your goal's that stage race. And But you can do this one and this one and this one and this one. And just hang on a second, slow down. If we want to do something good at the tour, I can't do every 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 race, every stage race on the World Tour with the hill in it for GC and perform well at the tour and Lombardia and etc. But sort of just it went to the extreme. But my main thing was I just had an opportunity to race and that's all I wanted to do was just race at the front again and be involved and and that's that's where it started, yeah. And you had great success there, right? Um ending up winning the world championships. That was a pretty good win. And then um you changed team and there we come to one of my favorite performances by you when you came up the Mür de Hui at Flash Vallon in this wonderful white world champion jersey and you just won a la pedal. You know, you punched it up there as the winning world champion. That's one of my favorite memories of you. Thanks. It was one of those funny things, speaking about Lotto and BMC. When I was with, when I went and did Flesh for Lawn in 2002 with Map A, we went and did a course reconnaissance and had a look at the climb and, okay. And here I was, there's all these new races and everything was new for me in 2002. I think it was maybe my first time I just, first time I'd been to Belgium to race on the road and it was all a bit overwhelming for me. And then with Lotto, we, because everyone on the team knew it so well, we didn't do any course reconnaissance or anything, or maybe we'd ride a bit of Liège because they changed the course or something. And um, so I'd been, I think I'd been second in Flesh for Lawn previously. And then, um, and then we go BMC, okay, we go and ride the final, have a look. And, I, and I'm riding up there and I'm like, shit, I'm always going too early here. Look at this, just wait till there. And sure enough, um, we go and do the race. I'll just hang back for a bit. Do, 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 do. Okay, now I go. And then, of course, having the rainbow jersey, I think it was the first race, the first victory of the BMC team that year, which April's a bit late, but of course having the rainbow jersey on that made it so much special. But um, of course, when you have Joaquim Rodriguez and um, and Alberto Contador in your in your lines, it's um, 
yeah, satisfying to come around, very satisfying to say the least, to come around and, and, and get them on the line. It was, um, yeah, it was, and that was, I suppose, really the start of um, the, the momentum at BMC and, and us as a team there. If you want to get more out of your free time, sign up to Outside Plus. For less than a dollar a week, you can get six print and digital issues of Peloton magazine, exclusive membership content from bellenews.com, access all the premium content from the whole outside family, including yoga journal, backpacker, ski, outside magazine, and many others. And that's not all. There are discounts of the hottest gear and biggest events, access to Gaia, GPS, and trail forks, as well as virtual health and fitness courses. It's $350 of value in one $99 annual subscription. But if you head to valuenews.com forward slash outside plus and enter BJPOD25, all one word, lowercase, at checkout, you'll receive our special 25% discount and make a good deal. Great. Now, back to our chat with Kadel. I, I got to go back because you kind of glossed over it. You know, we're already talking about, you know, you riding and winning in the rainbow jersey. But I'll never forget that final couple kilometers when it was clear that you were going to win the world championships in Mendrizio there. And I, I, I was jumping up and down. I knew what you had been through to get there. And I'm just envisioning the victory salute that you're going to do. You know, we've seen all sorts of victory salutes and I'm just waiting for it. And you kind of just rolled across the line and kind of gave like a little, you know, two finger kind of wave. And I started thinking to myself, does he think he has another lap to go or does he know that he won? <laughs> Tell us a little bit about th those emotions and that victory salute, because let's face it, Jens, you and me. We would have, I would have been pumping it up. I would have been hooping and hollering. I would have gotten off my bike and put it over my head. You know, I would have, you know, I'd be wearing a pair of world champion underwear right now if I won the worlds. But what, what was it where you just were like, got it. Thank you. Got to go home now. See ya. <laughs> I like the way you explained it, Bobby. Um, funny that year, and because you mentioned you touched on, I, I changed teams the year after. Behind the scenes, there was a lot. A lot of a lot going on in Lotto and things, um, mainly with the team and a lot of um, disagreements and um, yeah, things things weren't things weren't uh, so quite so glossy behind the scenes and and basically the going into the tour that year, this the team uh, Lotto lost complete faith in me in two thousand eight. I lo I lost the tour for the second year in a row. So I was two thousand seven, two thousand eight. I was second, and um, basically for them, if I didn't, I think. The thinking was, I'm trying to see it from their perspective, if I didn't win the Tour in 2008, I was never going to win it, therefore I wasn't worth backing. So the team had lost complete faith in me in at the end of the Tour in 2008. And they'd made life really, really difficult for me going into 2009. And the whole thing for the Tour and, oh, there's going to be a team time trial and they're not organising not even a team time trial training or... And I'm just like got no chance what am I going to do I'm going to lose like the max time because it was the 10 second rule so I'm going to lose two and a half minutes but 
here I am, I've lost to Contador um, uh, two years previously by 23 seconds, and I just know I'm going to lose two and a half minutes in the team time trial. <laughs> Where am I going to get that back? Um, so I'm like... Um, and so I was very unsupported going into that uh, 2009 tour, in that whole 2009 season. I was really actually just on my own. <clears throat> Go back to what lessons learned in T-Mobile and so on. And I was like, well, you know, there's one race I really want to get ready for, and that, and that was the Worlds. And all I really wanted to do that year was the Vuelta. But I just wanted to do that to get ready for the Worlds. <laughs> Same thing. <laughs> We're there, and one day, I won't, I won't name names specifically, but... For once, there's Lotto's on the front riding, and I'm like, no, 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 let the brake go, because otherwise there's going to be a little sprint to finish. Valverde's in the race, and he's going to, he he may if we if we have to sprint one on one, there's a chance that he's going to get the time bonus. And sure enough, they bring the brake back against my wishes. <coughs> Valverde gets the time bonuses. I was so angry, guessing waving his arms and elbows everywhere I couldn't even I couldn't even physically get around him um I was I was so furious but then it put me uh, out of the leader's jersey at the Vuelta and then this is a time when in my mind Valverde shouldn't have even been allowed to be riding and anyway I, I lost the Vuelta by a small margin um, through a, a series of a bit, a bit of more misfortune and finally I get to the Worlds and then um I go to the Australian team oh finally so a team that's going to back me. No, 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 no. We're riding for this rider, and you're a protected rider, but you're not the leader. Oh, okay, so I've been thinking about this race for a year because um, fast forward to the last lap of the race there where uh, Rodriguez and... Um, oh, sorry, he was your teammate. Kolobnev. Yeah. We're looking at each other, and they've left like a metre gap to me, and I was like, I, I saw this, and I'm looking under my legs doing this tonight and uh, I was like I wouldn't be doing that if I were you and I've gone off away solo anyway I'm riding that last climb and that's the same climb I rode nearly every day training to go home because I live like three kilometers from the finish line two kilometers I live from the finish line I still you know I, I go and you know do my errands or whatever I, I drive for a ride through the finish line so regularly almost on a daily basis it's bizarre but I ride that climb nearly every day I, I've been riding that climb nearly every day in training at home in all these years previously and here I get there and the whole world's behind me here I am on my own not a person in the world I had one teammate in the race Simon Clark he was my roommate <sighs> some other people but I was just feeding off everyone else but I had just in the world of cycling no faith in anyone I had Aldo Sassi and and this is when coming to the victory salute long long winded way to give an answer but basically I couldn't believe it because this is all happening and, and, and you have to understand when you're riding at the World Championships after everyone's told you you're shit, you're done, you're too old, you're never going to make it in the cycling and you've got the whole world behind you and you're riding 53.11 to the finish line in your hometown at 50-something K an hour and the TV motorbikes behind you, you're just like, am I, is this real? Am I, am I going to wake up in bed in a minute or is this for real? 200 end of 270 k's and then I come towards the finish line I'm thinking shit there's about three people four people who believe in me right now and one of them was right there in Mendrizio who was my physio who helped me get through some injuries the year previously <laughs> some other people were my at, the, at that time my family and then Aldo Sassi and, and Dr Squinzio at the finish line so I'm just like thank you Luca physio thank you family and the people who supported me thank you guys at MAPE 
because otherwise no everyone else told me I was done for the year and and I crossed the line just with so many emotions that I I couldn't express I couldn't with so much disbelief so not disbelief I couldn't believe the whole situation it was sort of too good to be true and that's sort of the crux of it I was just I had so much going on inside me that um, I didn't even I couldn't quite believe it How long did it take you to realize hey I am the world champion I'm far from being done I'm far from being too old because you had many more good years after that right um, yeah, so 2009, I was uh, 32, which that's changed now, but that was sort of the time when team managers thought, oh, no, he's done, he's too old now. And then um, I suppose, yeah, went back, we had dinner with the team and uh, went home, got, went about my thing and actually I was writing a book. I had a book deadline to meet about two days later. <clears throat> so I, I didn't sleep until my next race, I think. I was up at the computer finish editing a book. But um, I just... Yeah, I had the, I had a different jersey on, but for me it was just the same. I so I, I suppose the belief sort of took took it took a long time, but obviously you're wearing the rainbow jersey and all of a sudden the thing and this is sort of funny when I see like Ella Felipe becoming the world champion and of course he comes the world champion again, probably the first time it's it's more more so, but all of a sudden from one day to the next you're still the same person. And this was the thing for me, I'm doing the same training, I live in the same house, I have the same car, I have the same mentality, I'm the same person. But from one day to the next, the whole world of cycling treated me completely differently. But then it, the reason I say the background to my story, for me, it was one complete extreme to the other. He's a rider, he's too old, he's not going to make it, he's lost the Tour de France twice, he's never going to win that. <laughs> he, I, I think that year was only my second victory for the year, actually. Um, so the whole world of cycling didn't believe me anymore. Oh, he's the world champion. Oh, maybe he's good. Well, no, people don't even think it like that. It's like, oh, you're the world champion. Whatever you say is gospel. Um, you're like people's mentality just completely, completely changed, which is as a human being, it's kind of disappointing. Well, let me add three more people to the list of people that believe in you. Um, Andy Reese, Jim Okowitz, and George Hincapie. So, That was the nucleus, you signing at BMC, got George to sign there, or vice versa. Um, obviously, Andy Reese loved the sport of cycling. He loved you. Jim Okowitz was a big part of that. So tell us now, you're world champion. You're going into a new team that I don't even believe was in the, the world tour. Weren't you guys like pro, pro Conti? And then, you know... 2010, you know, things happened, but then all of a sudden, let's fast forward to the Tour de France in 2011. You're with your boys. You have support. You have support from the, the bottom up, and you're the guy. Tell us how, what changed for you mentally, physically, within the team, you know, getting back to that smile. Um, we know it wasn't a hard, uh, an easy race. You know, we were on a team or working for a team, Jens was still racing. And, um, you know, you, you beat two, two guys that we were really good friends with. But tell, talk us a little bit uh, through that experience in the Tour de France in 2011 when you eventually crushed everyone or your GC contenders in the final time trial and pulled on the yellow jersey in Paris. Well, there, there was a couple of steps leading up that. And again, behind the scenes, there was 
So there was all these um, problems going on in Lotto team in 2009. And it was actually, I, um, after um, um, I had, at that time, Tony Romiger was looking after my contracts and things. And it was actually Tony's vision and idea, but this is well before the World Championships actually, to consider maybe, or his words were, look, if you want to continue your career, you need to change teams. I suggest this is Andy Reeses. This is a team that's growing. Andy Reeses, this kind of person, someone you can have faith with, and this is the situation. And um, so this is this is a discussion he and I had in. Um, oh, this I think this was before the tour. It was, it was before the before the Vuelta. That's right. I got called up for a, a heated meeting with Lotto, and uh, I won't even go into those details. But um, they weren't very professional from their side, I'll say. Um, and. Um, and so this has happened. And then, um, so I'm going to the world and I, oh, of course, I always knew about you guys at Motorola and I grew up watching, watching Phil Anderson riding the tour in the Motorola colors and Jim Okwiks and all this. And I'd never met Jim Okwiks in person. I'd heard about him. I'd worked with people who'd worked with him and been on his teams and only heard good things about him. So just to cut to the chase. So Jim was at the Worlds and I'd have been on my bonnet to meet him. And he didn't want to meet me because he didn't want to just upset my concentration for the race. And I'm like, no, 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 Gina, I really want to meet you and so on. So I, my first time I met Jim was in this small little cafe in Varese on the Saturday before the World Championships. But me, I'm a bit more methodical than my madness may. Oh, there was reason for this. And the long story short, we sat there. I had my glass of mineral water. Jim had his coffee or his Coke or whatever. And um, and um, the, disc- the crux of the discussion was... He was asking about the team and, and you know, I'm, look, I'm in this situation, I don't like it and just explain my situation, what was going on because he had a certain perception from the outside and, and Jim's summary of our conversation was, um, all you need is a team that has faith in you and Jim and I said to Jim, Jim, that's all I want. And so the next day, um, well, for me, I'm, the reason for all this was all of a sudden there's this handbrake and it's just gone. So the next day I get on my bike at the World Championships and I'm like, hmm. Which chain ring will I ride up these climbs today? And um, so then I've gone and had the worlds that I wanted to have, and finally it came together there at the worlds. And um, I get this phone call uh, after the after the race from Jim, and he's ringed up with a real disappointed voice. And I was actually sitting in the car with someone else who was also putting together a, a team. And so I sort of had to be a bit careful in my discussion, but Jim rings me up and, oh, yeah, you know, I'm real happy for you, really well. I wish you all the luck for the future. It's really nice to meet you and whatever. And, uh, and I was like, without saying any names or anything, and, oh, you know, for me, this project that we spoke about still goes ahead. And he's like, what? <laughs> and anyway, it all started there. And, and then, um, so just to say, the whole change of teams and the World Championship didn't actually have much to do with that. It was it was already a plan in place. And um, But I think what really, the reason I explain this is that really gave a lot of faith to Andy. It gave a lot of faith to Jim. I think when I turned up and met George for the first time, other than saying hello in a race, I've, it was a week after I'd won the rainbow jersey and George, I'm coming to the team and now I want to win this tour. And George is like, you sure? Like, aren't you like 32 and old and stuff? And then 2010, it wasn't that 2011 was... 2010, I had two and a half minutes on uh, Contador after the cobble stage. And uh, because George led me, dropped me off in the right spot. And George, I think, punctured and caused a big crash. And Andy and I just rode on over the cobbles. Um, 
But the next day, I was I stopped to make a call for nature. I was running back to the peloton, do do do, and some guy just dropped it in front of me, and we weren't even racing. And I've just sort of fallen on my elbow, and okay, get back up. Oh, my elbow's a bit sore. Rode into the yellow jersey that day. And next day, went for an X-ray, and I had a hairline fracture in my elbow. I was really 2010. I was just ready to. That was my lost. That was my big lost tour for me. Fast forward to 2011. I'm just like. I just want to go into this and avoid bad luck. Um, we're just going through the same process. I didn't ride the Giro in the lead up. It's a focused training program. I just want to like avoid luck and uh, bad luck. And um, anyway, we started the year and um, it was really when we speak about team building, building strength, and because I was listening to an interesting podcast, a discussion between you guys and Andy Schleck. Um, like you had that military camps and it's for team building and building trust in each other. Whereas we were just like going to races and going to Torino. Okay, can you guys drop me off here? And oh, okay, I can win. Oh, can you guys drop me off here? Oh, we win. Oh, can we go do this? Here I have a crash out uh, riding my cyclocross bike through the forest and I'm out and come back to the Tour of Romandy and, and we win. It was just building confidence and confidence in each other. And, and we I felt we had going into the 2011, there was this un... We never spoke about the result. We never spoke between us as riders, but everyone in the team was just like, I don't want to be the link in this chain. I'm just going to give it everything I can. And um, I'm giving it everything I can because I sort of, that's sort of the approach I had to my entire career. And so by the time we lined up to the tour, it was just like, let's stay calm, kids. Let's do this and this. And and that, that was sort of the, uh, from, yeah. <laughs> 2009, where no one had faith in me. In 2011, a lot, of, a lot more people had faith in me. 2011, <clears throat> I was still racing on the other side, of course, with the Schleck brothers. But you are such a well-deserving winner because some of us could see the writing on the wall, the stage when Andy Schleck had this epic performance winning the Galibier stage. I saw this is not enough because you didn't lose too enough time. We needed easy two minutes or more on you because you're a much better time trial than Andy. But of course, everybody was so happy. Andy won the stage. You know, we had this master plan. Every rider was in the break, was there where he needed to be. Andy finished it off, winning the stage, taking the jersey. But I didn't want to be the bad guy, so I kept to myself. But I'm like, oh, I'm afraid it's not enough. It is awesome. But Cadell is still too close. And that day, you won the tour, because from what I have seen, Then you had all the green frogs from uh, um, Fuckler and uh, on them sitting on you. Well, what was the team called with the green jerseys? Like five of them? Europe car. Yeah, five of them. Fuckler was the only one who had a teammate in the group that was left on the climb. And, um, and nobody was, wanted to help um, you. Nobody wanted to pull with you. And you said, you know what? F you all. I just take it like a champ and ride for myself because I know what I have to do. And you put it all on the line. If that day would have failed for you, people would have laughed at you. Go, oh, look at Cadell, you did a mistake. But you put it all on the line. You took that risk of, no, I'm going to be riding tempo for myself because there's nobody else there. I need to limit my time loss to Andy Schleck. And now you look like a brilliant genius. It was a big call for you because, you know, people looked at you. Nobody really wanted to help you. If it wouldn't have worked out, people would have gone, oh, look at Cadell, he messed it up one more time. But now you look, look at how Cadell, how brilliant he wrote that day. But you really took a risk and you wrote like a man. I, I really, my deepest respect for that day. 
Oh, th- oh thank you. I, I think in summary that um, that day it was 9.5 kilometers from when I went to the front. At the, I was still on the Lotharay then, I think. The Lotharay that leads on to the Galibier. Um, I look back at it as um, I used every bit of experience and knowledge um, and calm, or staying calm under pressure um, for the previous 20 years of my career was put to, uh, put to use that day. But it, the funny, the steps that led to that, there was a little bit of panic before going on because you guys had breaks and I was just relying so much. There's always this strong headwind from Besançon up to the Lotharay. And I'm like, oh, okay, the break's going great. He's got, Andy's got teammates. and But the headwind there, it's not going to be enough. It's not going to be enough. But what's happened, these guys in the group behind us were just blowing up one after the other. <laughs> Even Steve Morabito and um, I mean, one other of our guys, uh, Amel Maillard, came back and they start riding and then there's poof, poof, poof. And they're like, guys, they're just falling to pieces in the group behind. And all of a sudden, it's like just the leaders left. And of course, when you've only got the G- GC leaders left behind there's no one to ride and that's where all of a sudden the brakes in a super advantageous position and um you know there was a bit of panic going on in that valley there and it's like john lelang was our director and john just do something do anything we're losing the tour and um it's like what can i do and I was like, oh okay and then this is the strangest thing Alberto Contador and, and listening to Andy and, and for Andy and I, I think Alberto Contador was like the guy, just the hardest nut to crack of all. When you went head, head to him, when in, in your discussion you had with Andy. Um, and then his Alberto, he were, he'd done the Giro that year. For once we're at the tour, he wasn't at his best. He wasn't there for the win. And he's like, um, we need to ride. Do you want me to ride? And, and Contador did the first turn at this nine... 10 k's to go and then I was like okay well I'm going to take over now yeah I'm going to have to ride because I'm going to lose the tour and I'm going to take over now and then it was like okay you said two minutes Jens and that's exactly two minutes was like I just want to if I can get Andy back to two minutes we can we can win this this is my thinking in my head and he's at like I don't know 340 or something at the start of the climb and I've got like the whole top 10 other than Andy of course on the wheel including Frank, your other teammate, who mm-hmm. also is third on GC, who's also brother in the breakup there. And I'm like, hmm. So here I am trying to bring back Andy on the Glibier with nine, eight of the best riders in the world on my wheel. And one of them's the brother of the guy in the break. And I'm trying to bring back this time. But then in my mind, I'm like, I've just got to keep something left for the last K because Frank's going to start attacking me in the final, right? And um, on their Vockler's there, and the Vockler was the only one with a teammate. But do you think, do you think Thomas Vockler is going to help an Aussie guy win the tour? No way in hell. <laughs> you are the king of the tour now. This is your job. And um, his, because um, he won on the Alpes the next day. My name escapes me. He went to EF afterwards. The French teammate that Vockler. Uh, Pierre Roland. Roland, yeah, that's right. Yep. Yeah, I'm sorry, I've just gone blank for the name. I think Pierre was looking at me and, and he wanted to ride because he knew it was the right thing to do. Because uh, just to our listeners, uh, Cadell, uh, Föckler was still in yellow that day, right? Yeah, yeah he was still yeah, in yellow. Just to our yeah. listeners, to be clear, Föckler was the defending yellow jersey that day. He had a teammate and he refused to ride to defend. Yeah, he didn't choose to defend his yellow jersey. He chose not to help me. Uh, that, that, that was the... That was the thing. So anyway, but, you know, just stay calm, process this, make some decisions. And 
okay, well, I've got good legs, so I'm just going to ride. And I was thinking, I knew at 5k to go, it was going good because you're getting the times and everything over the radio. So the time's coming down and riding, riding, riding. And um, as a, as a, as a rider, uh, when um, John Lelang's on the radio, um, uh, he's just telling me what's going on behind me because I'm trying to put on this Miguel Ingerain pose. I'm just riding on the front and I'm not, I've got everything under control. And, um, Oh, Contador's struggling. I was like, oh, let's just lift it for a moment. Because I'm, I'm riding, like, on the front. And I'm trying to close the gap. But I'm trying to also just save a bit before for Frank's attacks in the final. Contador's dropped. You've dropped Contador. And I'm like, oh, yeah, ridden Contador off the wheel on the Galibier. This is going good. Obviously, but Contador being the best climber of well, my generation is like, oh, shit, this is, this is, I'm on a good one here. And But that's, of course, just reaffirming that everything you're doing is right and um and the thing for me was actually it's funny we spoke about this Andy and I um many years later Frank didn't attack until 300 meters to go and I'm like oh okay I think I've I think we've got this covered now that was because I was expecting him to go earlier and you know he started hitting me at the K to go and I had to start changing speed and that it would have would have made it a little bit more difficult for me but um the fact that I could ride fast enough to keep them Stop, hold back attacks and 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 but still take, take keep something in reserve was sort of the the key moment for me and and the the key to it all was these near losses and all these situations before just staying calm because you're playing with this you know you're not playing shut you're not playing table hockey or something you're we're playing to win or lose the Tour de France it's sometimes a little bit hard to sometimes a little bit hard to stay calm but that was the the process going forward against with Andy and and just. As teammates, and you guys were teammates with Andy, you know, Andy and Frank. It's funny, like, my some of my best friends from my tour days who weren't my teammates are Andy and Frank. Andy called me uh, the evening after the race. You were deserving, you know, we did everything, but you're the deserving winner. And I was sort of, that just really stuck a chord with me because I, I didn't know Andy personally so well, but of course, now I haven't gone to his grand fondo and got to know them much better i know them but it's um we're i'd say we're we're good friends now and do you think um it did help you that that year you choose to do the dauphin libere as a preparation race and there was the identical time trial in the criterium dauphine then in the tour andy and frankie decided to avoid the dauphine and went to tour de Suisse. you think that played to an advantage for you to know the circuit to have done that time trial before totally <laughs> absolutely i i think i read about it in the in the press and it's like oh frank and andy are doing tour of swiss and i'm like okay good luck <laughs> they always did tour of switzerland i always did dauphine anyway it was just my thing no i always wanted to have the window of time to go back to altitude after between dauphine and the tour and then there's this time trial. i'm like why, why wouldn't you do dauphine well not my problem And um, no, because I went to uh, Dauphine and I remember I had a real B on my bonnet with BMC and it's just like I was there with um, someone who's actually now a colleague in my professional day-to-day -day dealings. Um, and I said to him, we've got to have everything exactly right for this bike because when we come back here in six weeks' time, this is the time trial of Dauphine, Libre, it could be really important. And he's like, looked at me and okay, and went about his work and this, um, Kata, Kata, Stefano Katai. Fantastic guy to work with. You may, you may race against Jens and Bobby, and and the, and this was the the discussion I had with him before the time trial in Dauphine. And um, the thing was, we prepared. I'd chosen the tires, the wheels, the gearing. I knew the downhills and everything. So I went into that time trial just like 
how could you be better prepared than I am for this time trial? Like, there's just not a doubt in my mind that I, at least I couldn't do anything more to to put on a to get the best out of myself on that course. And um, and then yeah, obviously when you having been in that situation coming from second to the yellow before on two occasions, two occasions I was expected to win, and two occasions I, two occasions I just felt fell short. This time you get to the first time check and oh, you're taking back 30 seconds in like two kilometers. Like, oh, well, this is going good. I, I can't remember the time checks exactly, but um, obviously then that just, as opposed to, oh, you've lost 10 seconds in the first K or something where it's just like <laughs> psychological hammer blow as opposed to you're going great, just keep at it. It's just, yeah, the pendulum shifts one way or the other in terms of, because you're sitting there riding a time trial. It's <laughs> your... Uh, your confidence in your ability to be relaxed is sort of kind of directly directly related to how well you're going to ride. And uh, since I was teammates with Andy and Frankie, I believe uh, Andy still finished 12 or 13 in a time trial, which is for Andy, it's a superb time trial to finish like 12 or 13 in a Tour de France time trial, but it wasn't good enough. I remember that day. Wow. Cadell, uh, I mean... I have the hair on my arm standing up with your detail. And uh, you know, this was over this was over a decade ago. And like your all these memories are coming back and that I love that you did that time trial that you had everything dialed and then, you know, even rode that race as if there was something depending on it. Like, you know, with Andy, with 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 a lot of guys that aren't time trial specialists. I always tell them, no matter what time trial it is, act like the yellow jersey in the Tour de France is on the line. Even if you're 60th in GC, 80th in GC, like go full gas and get that for experience. So like everything you say just like totally, totally rings true and just the detail. And I mean, I felt like I was on Vocaler's wheel listening to you guys talk and hearing those those, those, those unspoken words. But um Listen, we're running a little bit short on time. We need to have you back because there's so much more to talk about by the end of your career. And, you know, you're you're retired now. So I'm going to ask you, the final question is now in retirement, after all is said and done, what did pro cycling mean to you? It, and what, if anything, have you learned that you continue to use now in life? as a husband, as a father, as a, as a business person, like after all those trials and tribulations, what do you take out of your time as a professional cyclist? Well, just to go back to the, um, the unspoken words, Vokler did say to me, no, you are the king of the tour now. I remember it very clearly. Um, so the reason I remember all this is because I've been asked about it a lot over the years. Um, pro cycling. I always took the approach to my career and like I said, where I came from, where I was born, coming from Australia to be a pro. Everyone told me I couldn't do it. I'd never make it. It was too hard. So I worked really hard to, just to get into the pro ranks and pretty much not nearly every day of my career from um, I was it was just short of a 20 year career from from my early mountain bike days to my my last race the great ocean road race in february 2015 um i really looked at it as an opportunity i didn't look at it as a uh, hard training or 
sometimes I had a lot of expectations on me, which made things difficult to do. But I, I looked at it as an opportunity and a window of opportunity to give my best. And my real motivation in my career was I didn't want to have regrets afterwards because I made a lot of sacrifices and commitments and and um, you know moved to the other side of the world and so on. Um, and and coming from like we. I didn't get to go home during the year and stuff, and it was I was over there all my life for like twenty years. Um, but um, I sort of I'd given so much, so you don't want to cut yourself short in the last little details, not doing the course reconnaissance or not riding the the course to the finish line to see the last hundred meters or something on, on those things. But um, I treated I didn't want to have regrets when I finished my career because I knew that window of opportunity was going to close. So that was sort of a motivation as well not to have any uh, regrets after that fantastic opportunity that I sort of made for myself and that cycling gave to me. And now after cycling, I look back at it and I'm really grateful for the opportunity and the experiences and everything that cycling gave me and taught me. And that's why I have, a, I have it written on my jersey. I'm obviously not wearing a cycling jersey now, but it's I have this little thing on it, forever grateful on my, on my jersey because I'm forever grateful for everything that cycling gave to me. And, and that opportunity that it gave me to travel the world and meet people and learn languages and it just gave me everything in my life and I I, I, I still lose, use a lot of the lessons learned whether it's in training or being organized or working with people and treating treating people well in, in my day-to-day doings today I'm, I'm running off to a meeting now totally well within the cycling industry but you know, meeting with local government and things um, but that's I I'm, I I still think just like a just like a rider I think you know I, we we get up we meet I'm meeting in the morning no no I set my alarm earlier I get up I do my stretches and I'm I'm still a little bit I haven't I haven't quite quite uh, shelled the uh, athlete uh, mentality and approach to life. Well, hey Cadell, we know you got to run, you got to go make that paper, you got to go make those deals with the local government. So thank you so much for getting up so early. Um, that was a great conversation. We want to have you back. We hope to have you back at the Hincapie Grand Fondo again here in the next uh, next couple of years if, if, if you're up for it. Every We'd love year to... I'm buying my tickets to fly out with my family and they cancel things. <laughs> oh. Well, anyway, thank you so much for being our guest and all the best with all your new endeavors with your family and, and um, enjoy Australia and I'm sure we'll, we'll see you again on the road soon. Thank you, everyone. No, thanks for having me. Great to speak with you again. It's great to speak with you, Bobby, again. And oh, well, let's touch base again soon. Thanks, guys. Well, that's all our time for this week. Huge thanks to Cadell for being our guest. Thank you for listening. Please give us a five-star review and share us with your friends. The show was a Value News production in association with Shock Giraffe. The producer was Mark Payne, and this episode was edited by Tim Mosser. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Bobby and Jens and share your cycling stories with us. Mm-hmm.